Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello, Australia. Welcome to My Millennial Money. I'm Glenn James. Today, we are going deep on property. Uh, There were heaps of questions in the Facebook group about property, investing, first homes, all that. What I thought I'd do, I thought I'd get John Pigeon and Emily Wallace to jump on they run a podcast called My Millennial Property. G'day, John. G'day, Glenn. Emily, hello. Hey. Emily, yes. you're a buyer's advocate. You've been the co-host of My Millennial Property for probably just over a year now. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you can offer some of the My Millennial Money listeners today. Yeah, certainly. So, um, I am a buyer's advocate, as you mentioned, down here in Melbourne, and I specialise in first and family home purchases. So, I buy a lot of properties that people live in, and my job is to take the emotion out of that purchase because it can be very emotionally fueled. So, that's in a nutshell what I do here in Melbourne. The biggest piece of that is also trying to find them off-market properties that they cannot find online themselves. And get them a great result for their first or family home. So does that actually happen much, like getting properties off market? So to put some numbers on it for you and some context, this year in 2021, in the first six months, we've bought 32 properties and 23 of those have been off market purchases. Wow. Wow. So the reason that happens is I have a full-time team member dedicated to harassing, uh, for lack of a better term, the agents with the profiles of our clients so we can get them off markets. So those properties generally won't be on domain or on realestate.com? Correct. No marketing money has been put into them. They are um, literally just in a little black book somewhere with no marketing or anything. And no sign out the front of the property? Nope. Nothing. If someone was considering a buyer's advocate for their first home or the family home, like you obviously can't be on the ground in Brisbane East, but do you take consulting calls from people around Australia just to point them in the right direction? Like, because John does his clarity call, do you also do one for people that want to look at using a buyer's advocate? Definitely. So, we have contacts all across Australia to buy homes. We do a discovery call um, and it's about 15 to 20 minutes, very high level. If we can't help them, then we try to point them in the right direction of someone who can. Do you charge for that discovery call? No, we don't charge. All right. Well, I'll put a link in the show note. And uh, if you are wanting (laughs) to blow up Emily's life... um, (laughs) Make sure you fill out. You'll regret me doing this, Emily. I know. Uh, But if you want to uh, even consider buying a first home to live in, you don't know what way to go, you're a bit overwhelmed, jump on the phone and see where the the road takes you. Even if you're locked down and bored in COVID, you might just want to book one in anyway, just have a chat with someone. Absolutely. (laughs) Yep, that's my hotline. Sure, I'll I'll be available. (laughs) All right. You guys ready to get into these questions? We are. Okay, so what we've done, we've kind of filtered all the questions in the Facebook group and uh, we're basically just reading the ones that have had the most likes because obviously they're the most liked ones. The first question from Josh Nicholson, uh, he's a bit of a pest of the podcast. Uh, He's been a a client of John's. I had lunch with him in Brisbane. Um, He came to the 
Gold Coast event. Uh, you keep it up, Josh, and you'll get a restraining order. But uh, he says, <laughs> now that we are in the first home, assuming the emergency fund is good, uh, what's better, to save in the offset account or start smashing the mortgage? Uh, and they don't really have a financial goal at the moment. So, John, I might throw it to you first. Yeah. Um, and then Alice actually, Alice Hartley added, oh, and a third option, putting money into investments instead. So, yeah. take yeah, that for cool. what you will. Yeah. All right. So, we'll try and answer the third bit as well. But I think generally speaking, I personally like to keep the money in the offset account uh, because it's in my control. And I can do what I want with it. And it's obviously still offsetting uh, that that debt or that um, interest or reducing my interest on my own mortgage. So, yeah, in that case, you might not know what you want to do with it. You might not have your goals, but at least it's in your control. If you pay it down, that's a great thing. And, and psychology-wise, you might want to reduce your debt and see the physical figure reduce, but essentially it's doing the same thing. And, and uh, to pay it down, you need to ask for it back from the bank. So that's, um, that's a negative in that sense. John, is it fair to say that if you do have an offset account and you don't really have any financial goals, there's just no way in the world you'd want to be committing that capital into the mortgage? Well, I think the a reason people do it is just to see that figure, that mortgage reduce and just to see that balance uh, as a lower amount. I think it's a, a, it's a psyche thing, isn't it? But yeah, uh, things change very quickly, as you know. So like you mightn't want to do something today, but then all of a sudden in a month's time, something different comes up and it's like, hang on a minute, I want to use that cash. Um, to Elisa's point, putting money into investments instead, that, that's probably more of a strategic play as to whether I want to use cash as my deposit to buy a property or cash to, to buy some shares with um, versus saying, well, I can pay down my bad debt and then bring it back out as good debt. John, I'm pretty sure I remember uh, Josh, they purchased a new townhouse in Brisbane. Yes. And I think we even interviewed him on the podcast before. You know, young family, new townhouse. I, I just don't think there's, for, you know, Josh in particular, if I'm, you know, giving general financial advice here, <laughs> generally speaking, um, you would assume that one day that Josh and the family will want to upsize uh, the family home, which might mean we need to take money out of what where we're at and put into a family home. And they might even keep their current uh, townhouse as an investment property, which means we just don't want that money applied to the loan because we can't pull it back out of the loan no. to put it into the principal place of residence. Or there's a little thing called, is it part 7A or something like that? Tax avoidance. Mm, yeah. Um, so, th there could be a pickle there. So Yeah. Yeah. It just muddies the waters, doesn't it? And I might ask Emily, just from a human point of view, like- Sometimes if we don't know, the answer's no, and it's okay not to do anything. Would you think, Emily, that leaving the money on the offset account temporarily, doesn't have to be forever or for a year or whatever, and just really start to work through some short or medium-term financial goals for the family? I was going to say, I think what's lacking from this is a sense of direction on financial goals. And you, you can somewhat have it both. If you're still, you know, saving whilst you've also got money in the offset, you don't, it doesn't have to be one or the other. And it can be that, like you mentioned, short to medium term goals, where you can start potentially investing in other things or, yeah, build up funds for maybe it's a family holiday or maybe it's education. Um, so, yeah, I think it's sort of taking a bit of a rounded view. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And I will say like, we're all about financial goals and having a strategy, but we know over the last 12 months, Josh has got the first home they're living in. Uh, I think there's been a couple of kids arrive on the scene. It's still okay to say, look, 
for the next year, we're actually not doing anything. The goal is to just live and enjoy life. Mm. We'll leave the money on the offset. And then naturally we'll start to come up for air and start to, ve- and start to develop goals. Like I don't think we always have to have, be foot to the uh, floor. No, you're right. It's not like exercising where we should be doing it daily. It's just set and forget, <laughs> do it once and then, uh, and then reset in six months' time or even longer. Is that my problem? I've done exercise once <laughs> and I think I'm set and forget. <laughs> didn't say that at all. Emily, I might throw to you, there's a question here from uh, Eloise. In your view, like, what are the pros and cons of principal and interest repayments and interest only repayments for investment loans? If you pay interest only, at what stage do you actually pay down the principal? Now, I'll just preface this, uh, Emily, we know you specialise in uh, first homes for families and people, but you've got investment properties in your own right. So perhaps you could maybe share what you've done in your own life with your investment properties and why. Yeah, definitely. So it's a very timely question because um, I'm just going through the process of refinancing actually at the moment. Um, And so to give context, I own two investment properties, one that it's just ticked over three years and the other one I only bought about three months ago. Um, So the first one I had on interest only um, up until recently. And I think the reason really for the change is the interest only made sense and I basically, it was a neutrally geared property. Um, now that the rent has slightly increased a little bit um, and I'm feeling more comfortable and confident with my own cash flow, I've changed that to P&I um, to start paying some down of that principal so that when I do um, eventually sell it, the, the gap of what's outlaying of, of that mortgage is, is smaller um, and so that I can get a, a good gain of what I've actually paid out. With the other one though, I've actually kept it as interest only to begin with um, for a three-year fixed term um, because again, I just want to get it, I want to get it under my belt, want to get comfortable with it um, and the numbers make sense in doing it that way and I don't have any intention of really selling out of either of these for a long time, probably you know 15, 15 to 20 years maybe. So when is the best time to start paying down the principal? I think it is very much an individual's case as to when that comfort level is right and when the numbers make sense. Um, but that's a bit of context on what I've personally done with mine. John, any comments on the P&I? Yeah, it's an interesting debate at the moment because the interest rates are so low, aren't they? So we, we might want to choose to pay it down um, quicker because the rates are lower. And, and I, when I last checked, there was probably about half a percent difference between the P&I and the interest on the um, mortgage on an investment property, but that will change from lender to lender. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a good time to consider paying it down, but really important, first of all, to know what it is that you want to do. Uh, because yeah, once you start paying it down, it's money that's not being saved uh, for, for other investments or other lifestyle choices. But conversely, like my investment property, it's principal and interest because if Glennie James gets his hands on that money, it's walking out the door. And yep. I'm doing it to protect myself. Yeah. The, the, the worst case is you're paying down an asset that's hopefully growing in value. So yeah. yeah. And I will just swing back around for those who might be new to the whole property thing with principal and interest. If someone had a $500,000 loan for, we'll just say a $550,000 investment property or home, um, and the interest rate was 3% and you took it out as interest only, 3% of 500000 is $15,000 per year, which works out to be $1,250 per month. Now, I'm not a mortgage broker, but I believe the longest interest-only term you can generally get in Australia is five years. Is that correct? Yeah, they're both nodding. Someone rang me the other day and got 10. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, wild. Mm. Uh, but that wouldn't be a, a top four lender. No. No. But so a long time. we'll just go on the assumption of five years. So we say we want the $500,000 mortgage interest only, and then you'll get the, the statement or the loan documents, and it will say, here's your loan. It's interest only for the first five years. And then after the first five years, it will be principal and interest for the next 25 years. So you will have to start paying down the principal and the principal is basically just the loan amount. So what I believe, you know, back in the early 2000s, everybody was doing these interest only loans. Money was cheap and it was uh, leapfrogging into the next property and, you know, buying 128,000 properties in 20 minutes and all this stuff. You really want, would look at doing this strategy if you're in a if you're in a market that is going to have some high capital growth because short term interest only the value of the property will grow then i can take that equity out buy another property or flip the property in 5 years and i've made money secondly it might be a strategy that i just keep it interest only for the long term because i know inflation is going to reduce the value of that debt so it is a, a personal thing and what works for your personal cash flow. Mm. And just on that, Glenn, you mentioned inflation. What you're basically saying is over time, the rent's going to increase, which means the cash flow of that property is going to, to look after that, um, the running costs of that property better. So it'll produce a positive cash flow position. Um, but for, for the property addicts out there that when Glenn said they need to, after the five years, revert to P&I, Strategically, there is other options. Um, however, that's what the, that existing lender will want you to do. But this is the problem, guys. Like, we know that if you're heavily leveraged and the market turns, that's how you get flushed down the toilet. Because what happens is at the end of the five-year term, if the market's crapped itself, you can't refinance uh, because you don't, your financial situation might be changed, the property values might be changed, and what happens? Oh, I've got to pay principal and interest. I don't have the cash flow for the principal payments. Oh crap! I've got to sell the property. I can't afford it. Oh crap! I can't sell it, so I've got to fire sale it, and it's just this cascading flush that can happen. Yeah, and that's the ever importance of cash flow, isn't it? To begin with, like we can't just create another two hundred dollars a week in rent but we can choose what yield we get when we first buy. Yeah. All right, moving along to the next question. Actually, there's a question here from Larissa Knight about installing solar on the principal place of residence. Now, I understand you guys have just recorded a Q&A episode that will answer this question on the property podcast. So, we might skip that. And if you want to jump over and subscribe to My Millennial Property, uh, you can have a listen to that. Just, just sorry, just on that, Glenn, we didn't answer the part of it that says, does it add much value to the property? Um, so, I'm not convinced whether it does or it doesn't, but it may be appealing to someone that buys it off you saying, oh yeah, I like the idea of solar, lower running costs. Do you have a view on that, Emily? I agree. It's a component of the property that some people might look out for. Um, and it's just like, you know, does the property have a freestanding bath in it? That might be an advantage to some, disadvantage to others. It's one of those components that can play into the value perception. Mm. Uh, Clara Riddle, can we discuss the pros and cons of using your principal place of residence for collateral and how it can help purchase more houses with the equity? So, John, I might throw it to you for that one. Can you just explain uh, collateral and equity and how we might be able to use it? Because I just don't want to assume that everybody knows these concepts. Yeah. So, 
What Clara is saying basically is I've got my own home that I live in. I've got some equity uh, or usable equity according to the banks, which is our value um, times 80% minus our debt uh, as a, a broad level amount. And Are you able to get a pen and paper and give us a worked example, please? Righto. So 500K is our value times by 80% is 400K minus our debt, let's say our debt's 300, gives us usable equity of 100K. So Clara's saying, well, what's the idea? What are your thoughts on taking that 100K, provided I can service that and go and buy more houses with that particular equity? So what happens when we go and do that is we're essentially borrowing 100% of the purchase price because the equity we take out is we're paying interest on that as soon as we start using it and then we're borrowing that other 90 or 80% from uh, the lender or another lender to purchase that property. So, yeah, Clara, that's great. That's how I built my portfolio, not with our principal place first but just to pull equity out of properties. Um, however, we need to understand the, the cash flow, the running costs of that particular property or the next one we're going to buy um, and know that we're – we're in a, a safe financial position. We've got our buffers in place and uh, and then we're, we're going to be in it for the long term. Yeah, so the negatives of that, I suppose, is I buy a property, I didn't understand the numbers, interest rates rose or I got some vacancies that I didn't expect, I didn't do enough research and I have to sell the property and I may have lost money on it because of the transaction costs that, that come with property. Um, and the other potential risk, and depending on who's in your corner from a finance perspective, is uh, that same lender that has your principal place mortgage may in fact give you uh, the 100% of the lend for that next investment property, but what we call cross-securitize the two properties together. So basically, you're, they're both relying on each other and to sell one of them means that you might have to pay down the other property by a certain amount to make sure the loan-to-value ratios are, are acceptable. So we talk a bit about this in on our property podcast, but yeah, that's high level. Hey, Emily, your uh, properties are you using the security of the two investment properties for each other or are they kind of standalone? They're actually now standalone. So for the first one, I did have a guarantor loan to actually get that underway. The guarantor has now been removed from the first one. And the second one, I actually did um, put down the, the full deposit to be able to secure that one in the end. So they're not, they're not de- dependent upon each other at all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just a, um, it just goes to risk management, right? Mm. Yeah, and there are some lenders out there now, which is a lot more common than it used to be back in my day, Glenn, is um, they will take both securities, but they won't cross-securitise the the loans. So just be aware of that. And that's a great question to ask your mortgage broker next time you see. I um, ran into the lounge room to get this book and I mentioned it to John before because I'm writing this book with Wiley. And I said, can you send me some recent books that you've published, right? And they sent me this book, uh, Rethink Property Investing. And it's all about commercial property. And uh, it's Scott and Mina O'Neill. And I'm, I'm going to actually reach out and get Scott on that we can um, have a chat to. But I, I'm genuinely interested in this. And maybe it is my own risk profile. But, you know, these guys say in the book, they got $20 million worth of properties. And, you know, at age... 28, uh, and only like 10 years ago-ish, they had 25 residential and commercial properties. Um, so, it just speaks to 
your own risk profile and that I could not stomach having, you know, because it goes back to, it's like, okay, you got $20 million worth of property. How much freaking debt are you carrying? Like, would it not be easier just to wipe all the debt and have half of that and live forevermore? Amen. And so, I only brought that up because for Clara and anyone else thinking about uh, using the residence for collateral, it all does come back to your own risk profile. Mm, absolutely. And and when you're building huge portfolios like that, you really do need a, a really high cash flow, positively geared portfolio to begin with. Otherwise, you, you, the banks will shut you down after a few. Yeah. And, and that's like, because I've only, you know, a little, you can see the bookmark here, I'm only a little bit into this book, but they did talk about that you know, we don't subscribe to the old school model of negative gearing mm. um, because it caps out and it's just dumb almost. Mm. Um, so, but that'll be an interesting one. So, I'll try and um, reach out to uh, Scott and Mina. Jacinta has a question here. Buying first property with partner, it's definitely not a forever home. So, is it wise to pay more than necessary on the mortgage or wait until next home? I'd rather use the extra money to invest, but my partner doesn't invest. So, he views paying extra on the mortgage as a better idea financially. So, Emily, you're a, uh, a new age hip gal and you've got a partner and, you know, you're all in love and all that stuff, um, whatever that is. Do you have any um, views of buying a property with a partner? And have you guys discussed that yet? Yeah, great question. Um, so, we're both um, very much of the mindset of rent vesting for the foreseeable future. Um, I think the only way we'd buy is if a property came up in the area that we absolutely love and we could make it work. We actually did walk through one a few weeks ago and then we realised we were absolutely dreaming with the price tag. So, that was a bit of a reality check. One thing I would say in buying property with a partner, and, and um, John and I have touched on this recently in an episode, but I think the thing that people really forget about is when you join with a partner, you obviously both may come with your own assets and liabilities. And particularly when you already own some properties before you're even entering into property together, it's really important to make sure your own assets are secured and looked after. And I think something that's not spoken about enough is around binding financial agreements to make sure that they're in place. That's a little bit of a side note and something that people can, I guess, action and take on and and think about. But in terms of buying together, and I think the question is certainly asking um, should we sort of spend more, given it's not our forever home, should we go further on this or should we sort of pull back and then go further on the next one? It's a really common question that I get asked as well. And I think the biggest thing is working out how long will this property service our needs? How long before we outgrow it? And with the rate of rise in the particular area that you're looking in, will you be able to sell out and buy back into where you want to be? And that can be a really difficult question for many to answer, but it's certainly one that you need to consider because it will impact what property you ultimately end up buying together. Yeah, I totally agree, Emily. And just while you're speaking then, I wrote down the word education. And I actually think it's hard to make decisions or we Uh, put our head in the sand if we actually don't know how things work. And maybe, just maybe, your partner Jacinta might not understand how an offset account works and the flexibility that can give, but with the benefits of, quote unquote, paying down the loan. So, I think maybe it is an educational piece. Uh, I would totally suggest that you probably should both sit down and get some clear goals because it then comes back to goals. Like, okay, this isn't our forever home. Um, 
good. It's almost very similar to that Josh Nicholson question, right? Like, mm. what do we do? Uh, one side of the partner wants to pump the mortgage down because that's what they know. And then it goes back to, well, what was your money story growing up? Were your parents just like, oh, we just pumped the mortgage and happy days and risk profile, all that stuff. And maybe a clarity call with John could help. I don't know, but uh, I think clarity is kind and we all need to get clarity to make a decision. Uh, I think it's clear also for, for Jacinta and the partner that, there's a debate going on in the in the lounge room, isn't there? And and it, both parties have got different points of view, and it, it's about coming together and say, right, here are the pros and cons that I've brought to the table, that, and this is yours. Uh, what makes logic sense to us? Are we dealing with emotion here? Are we de- dealing with risk um, and the understanding or perceived risk going on, and to to come to a to a common, uh, I suppose, answer. But the last thing you want to do is try and convince some, someone to do something that, that they don't want to do. Yeah, because that just leads to, yeah, gosh. How many times have we like done something we don't want to do and we're just too shy, embarrassed, scared or whatever to say anything and, you know, a year later a volcano erupts and it spills everywhere. So yeah. Anya Dashko asks... If you're in one of those professions that could potentially get LMI waived, like a health professional, is there anything inherently wrong with putting down only a 10% deposit to get into the house market? Nope. Uh, That was me saying nope. Uh, Assuming you've done your research and are able to afford the repayments, uh, including interest rate rises. So, what's your view on this one, Emily? I definitely think to take full advantage of that because the sooner you can get in, uh, in my personal opinion, the better. Um, and the difference between a 10% deposit versus a 20% deposit can be two years of saving in some people, three years. So I think if you can service it based off, and banks aren't going to lend you money if you can't service it, um, on the forefront, obviously factoring in potential uh, interest rate increase. But certainly if you are in a profession, and I know, um, shout out to the chiros out there, chiropractic just been added as one of the professions of late um, that can take advantage of that. Jeez, the um, medicos will hate that. <laughs> <laughs> Osteos as well, haven't they? Yeah, osteos, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, not sure how they determine the, I, I guess it's around job security and all that sort of stuff, but um, I definitely would be taking advantage of it. I've worked with plenty of people who have in certain professions and I think getting in is key um, and if that's what you can do to get in, then go for it. John? Yeah, well, fitting this one because I uh, spoke to a professional football club this week in Melbourne and we had this same conversation and I was talking about, yep, are you footballers, you're professionals, you've been kissed on the toe for being good at football, so you only get to put 10% down while the rest of us have to put our 20 to avoid LMI. And and one of them was actually uncomfortable with it and, and wanted to put down 20 just purely because of his risk profile. And we spoke about that before, didn't we? But that, that'd be the only thing stopping someone from taking advantage of it, I think, is just, uh, is yeah, I'd rather put down my 20 because that's all I've known and that's what I'm going to be comfortable with and that's going to reduce my repayments, etc. So I'm going to go ahead with that. Yeah, I, I want to reiterate, like, if you want to do something and you've got the money and you've looked at all the options, mm. do it. Mm. And if someone says, why did you do that? Tell them to suck it. Like, it's it's pretty simple. Like, you're better off that you've got maybe, and I don't know if uh, Anya has a 20% deposit saved, but like, if you've got a 20% deposit saved and you can waive the LMI and you can do it with 10%, 
I'd probably just leave the other 10% on the offset. But if you go, Glenn, piss off, I want to put the whole 20% down, mm. do it because you've got more money than probably most people whinging saying you shouldn't do that. So this whole personal finance thing, it's so personal and each of us have completely different financial situations and risk profiles. And as long as you've looked at the options, just hang your hat on the decision. Mm. But just don't whinge in two years later that you want to now move into an invest, move into another property and use this as your investment property. And, oh, I put the extra 10% down. You know, I shouldn't have done that. Well, no, you hung your hat on the decision. So Yeah. And just to finish on that, I think the important part of it is understanding that you've got those options. Like I've met people that haven't been informed or their broker didn't know that that was actually possible for their profession. Like that's just not on um, to come back and realise, oh, could have taken advantage of it. So again, the knowledge piece there. Uh, we might take a quick break. Uh, before we do, I, I know I was a bit cheeky to the osteos and chiros, but I would like to say that I've used osteos and chiros and physios before. Uh, and the best thing I've done for my own health now is uh, Pilates and stretching each day. Uh, so um, shout out to everyone listening. Oh, definite backpedal there. Well, no, I just want to be, you know, I was being cheeky and joking yeah. and sometimes people don't feel the room and say Glenn's mean and rude. I do find it weird that some osteos will say they're a doctor, but we'll get to, uh, we'll move on to property. (laughs) Okay, love you. Let's have a break. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. All right, we're back. John, if there are new listeners, uh, we profiled Emily at the start of the episode Uh, Can you just tell people a little bit about yourself and maybe one of the latest things you've been working on? Yeah, so uh, I formed a company many years ago called Solvair Wealth that's purely education around um, coaching people into property investing and helping them hold their hand essentially and allow them to do the work, but I coach them. We also run a buyer's agency called Envisage Property, which, uh, yeah, I suppose, does the work for them instead of them doing it themselves, but we also hold their hand through that. Uh, But yeah, most recently I've uh, developed a property analyzer calculator, which we're pretty excited about. It's uh, going to be web-based as of next month, which will be, what's that, August? And I had a conversation, someone rang me yesterday out of the blue and said, look, I've just used your analyzer calculator. Um, we're, we're looking at three different properties to buy as options and it wasn't until we put it through the analyzer calculator to compare them against each other to then clear, clearly decide that one was going to be better than the other two. So that, that was just a nice uh, little uh, bit of feedback there on what it can do for you to either purchase a property um, and before you transact or to, to analyze your portfolio going forward. Well, I, and remember when we were in Adelaide, I think, uh, in the hotel, we were bored um, and I rolled over in bed and said, oh, John, can you pull up the analyzer? <laughs> I wasn't in the same bed. Emily, you always spat out of water then. Um, <laughs> that was not good timing. <laughs> but, um, but I used it on my own uh, investment property just as a review mm. and it was really cool to see the actual numbers mm. to just see, okay, well, that's actually making me money. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, I like money like the next person. Mm. Uh, Lee has a question here, Lee McDonald. How much extra should I be paying off my mortgage on top of my regular repayments? Now, I might just bookend this one. 
it just comes back to strategy. You know, we teach uh, on My Millennial Money, once you do your spending plan, and for example, the Glenn James spending plan, you'll put all your minimum repayments in, you'll put all your expenses in, and at the end, the last tab on the screen, it will actually spit out uh, what's left over. Now, with that quote-unquote what's left over amount, that's where it comes into goals. Do you have a goal for a new lounge? Do you have a goal to buy an investment property? Do you have a goal to um, pay down your home mortgage? You might, you know, everyone's different. So there's actually no answer to that, Lee. Uh, I would say if paying down your mortgage and pumping that mortgage is actually a goal of yours, the answer to how much is as much as possible. And it's like any goal, like, oh, I really want to buy a new lounge or I really want to buy a new mountain bike and they're $7,000 or a new stand-up paddleboard for summer. How much should I be saving to this goal as much as possible? So it really is how long's a piece of string. Uh, and of course, you know, reach out to John uh, if you need a clarity call for that. There's a question here uh, from Gabe Weber land flipping. And I haven't heard this one uh, before, John, and I might um, throw to you, buying in new estates, then selling after titles are released. Sure, it's okay in a rising market, not when flat, all about low outlay, uh, no tenant worries, pros and cons, speculative, etc. So, are we um, rolling the land dice? Yeah, Gabe's he's sort of answered uh, the own question there, to be honest, like it's it's def- when you when you are, I suppose, speculating and and turning property over like that, it there is definitely higher risk. Um, so I, I have a lot of people reach out and say, "Is this a good idea? And should I do it? And I'm about to do it, etc." Um, now, the the pros of doing it is okay. So, well, let me go back a step. So, what is he? is saying is basically buying unregistered land and putting down a, a nominal deposit, might be 5%, and then waiting 12 months. And then once it's titled through council ready to be built on, uh, he's going and putting it back on the market and someone's buying it and then they can build on that straight away. He's anticipating that in that 12 months that he's owned it for, for very minimal outlay, that it's gone up. Uh, X amount that he can then take away as profit. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it's it's risky if you cannot afford to hold the property in the event that you don't want to sell it and you haven't had any growth. You, you're relying on the market, which is a lot of out of your control investing. So, it, it's not my preference. If I'm doing house and land, I'm definitely going to see it through and and um, build that property and then sell it because then we've got the ability to to sell it to someone who can go and live in it day one as opposed to doing the hard work themselves. Yeah, so John, like, so for example, if a block of land's $300,000 and the estate is not even mowed down and set yet and they're selling plots of land, you know, they might say uh, $300,000, give us a 10% deposit. Now, it's almost like buying off the planned property. I only have yeah. to cough up my deposit. But the problem is, and John and I are about to record... Uh, another update on buying off the plan and my own experiences with the apartment that's about to settle. Um, The only problem is we don't know the exact time where it's going to complete and you've got to have the strategies in place. So if you are left holding the bag that you can afford it, and again, it doesn't flush you. 
Yeah. So yeah, and might not be one for the first time property investor. We've s- yeah, whatever. Correct. Yeah, and that's a good point too. Um, making sure that you have got the risk profile around it, not just looking at the dollar signs. How, how long have you been investing? Do we want some solid foundational properties first? Uh, but. Yeah, just really looking at where are we buying in those areas and, and is it a greenfield estate, meaning it's uh, it's further out from the main city centre? What's the supply-demand look like? Um, Emily and I have talked about owner-oc versus investor ratio. We don't always know the, the answer to that when we're looking in new estates like that, how many lots are going to be available. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of indicators that are out of our control until it's, uh, it's out of the ground. Can I just chime in there on just something that I think that I've heard of that I'm not sure how applicable it is across Australia, but in some estates when they do sell the land and then it titles, they actually have clauses in there around the time frame in which that you can actually sell that land. And in some cases, you're not allowed to resell the land at all. So if this is a strategy for you, um, definitely do some reading up on the fine print of those contracts as to what you have legally signed and agreed to um, um, as being part of that estate, um, if it is in an estate, uh, as to when you are allowed to sell. Because it is a very easy way to make money if it goes up quite quickly, mm. and land typically does. Um, but you don't want to be caught with a piece of land that you actually don't want to do anything with and it hasn't got a plan. Or you have to settle on it, you have to get a mortgage, you have to service it, and you have to build it, and you can't sell it for whatever reason. Yeah. And like it's just the ultimate flusher. So... Uh, John, quick question. There's another question here, and it's a late submission from a Glenn James. Um, there's you want free advice the, again? Yeah, up the coast. You know how they develop ca- Caves Beach and Catherine Hill Bay. Yep. And like people buying in land there, and you know making two hundred grand basically in a year and a bit. Yeah. There's another development um, that I've driven past up at Lake Macquarie. Uh, called Cranagan Bay. So, you go down towards Cranagan Bay, is it? Um, At Gwondolin. I was thinking about seeing and just, you know, buying a block of land and doing what this guy's talking about. Mm. Probably need to book in a clarity call, to be honest. Like, I haven't got your full... (laughs) I need the full situation. I need to understand your risk profile. All right. Well, here's some uh, research for our clarity call. Can you let me know if I can buy a block of land uh, up on Lake Macquarie? Uh, That would be great. Look, and and generally speaking, we we did a podcast today, Emily and I, we we recorded anyway, and we spoke about um, vacancy rates around different regions and how low that is and just how limited or, or just how shortage of supply there is around the place. And, and land in some, some places is no exception to that. But then there are other places that have got a, a real oversupply of land coming on and, and it's high investor-driven areas. So we want to avoid those. Um, but yeah, look, generally speaking, it's it's tightly held on the Central Coast, Newcastle, uh, Lake Macquarie area, Glenn. So it's not the worst idea you've come up with. Uh, after this, I'm going to make a phone call and get a, an information kit. <laughs> because, And that's it. Like I, I would say the reason I'm toying with the idea is because it's not my first rodeo and I am in a, thankfully a good position that I could put a deposit down of uh, $40,000 tomorrow or whatever and then kick the can down the road three years and just see where we land. But yeah, 
I, I've just learned from Emily that I'd need to check the contracts that I'm not tied into it and I don't have to build because the thing with the um, Caves Beach estate, you had to actually build and the estate had this weird bylaw thing mm. where you had to have a timber f- fence. That's right. You, had to, you couldn't paint your front door purple if you wanted to. Yeah. So, there was all these weird rules and I'd imagine maybe some of these states, they don't want it to be where people just buy a, a block of land and it sits there empty for 10 years. Yeah, and, and I think the thing to consider, I always look at when you're doing something a bit more speculative or higher risk, you want to have at least three options. A, B, and C. Mm. So what are they? Um, so yeah. if you have to build on it, you want to be able to. If you if you physically can't finance the build, then I wouldn't look at something like this um, because interest alone, if you were to hold that for three years at three percent, there's about twenty seven grand of interest, right? Now that's the land going up by ten percent. If it goes up less than that, you're actually losing money. Yeah, totally. I thought property always goes up, John. Gosh. Freaking wrecking my life over here. Okay, we'll finish on a question from Madge, if that's how you pronounce your name, sorry. How do we find out where we can buy investment property to get a positive cash flow? What should we take into consideration? Thanks. So, Emily, Hmm. I might even ask about your personal journey with uh, purchasing your last property. Uh, What did you do? Yeah, so um, with my investment properties, my second one and the strategy this time was definitely more of a focus on cash flow. Definitely want growth, but um, cash flow was sort of the first thing. Um, So I've got a bit more leverage in the future. So to give some numbers around this and some context for everyone, I bought that property for 385,000 and the weekly rental income is 450 per week. So the rental yield or the yearly rental return is just over 6%. And that's, you know, that's great. I've actually had a few repairs had to be done on the property and because I'm paying interest only at the moment as well, um, the repairs plus the management fees, I still come out with cash in my hand at the end of the month, which is awesome. Now, how do we find these properties and where do they exist? Well, there's quite a few factors that you have to consider when looking for a property like this and knowing your numbers is absolutely key. Now, John and I have done a few deep dives on on the criteria that you need in to consider um, when picking a cash flow positive property. But obviously, um, the biggest probably oversight that a lot of people look at when they buy property is two things. Number one would be the vacancy rates as to how quickly could that property actually be rented and I can get that foreseeable cash flow. And number two is the maintenance because it's all well and good to have cash flow positive property and have that money coming into your account every month. But Usually, generally speaking, the larger the house, the more potential problems, the more maintenance that may be required. And it could be small scale, like a broken tap, like I had this week in mine, or it could be major. And so I think that's one thing that a lot of people really don't hone in on when they're looking, they're chasing this cash flow, but they're not necessarily accounting for a maintenance fund. Um, So I think that's really, really important. When you're considering as to where to find them, um, John can probably talk a bit more in depth as to um, location basis. I mean, very dependent on price point, um, but you've obviously need to weigh up the purchase price versus the weekly rental return to help understand how cash flow positive that property would be. Yeah, look, and we did a an episode that um, is coming out shortly, um, 
an example of an area that's got actually a 10% gross yield at the moment. So that's, uh, for reference, that's about double. So if you're buying something for 200 grand, it's probably going to rent for close to $400 per week, right? So the question mark around that is, what's our strategy? Do we just want to get um, five grand a year, 10 grand a year in our pocket per property and, and build our portfolio that way? Or do we expect capital growth from that property as well? So understanding what that overarching strategy is. And as you touched on, Emily, about yours with the, with the maintenance, the, the age of the property, generally they are older if they're going to capture a yield like this unless they're a, a, a dual oct type um, arrangement. And, and what are the actual running costs of the property when you put all your numbers through that analyzer calculator that I spoke about before, what sort of a, a net result do you get? Um, and it might not be as much money as you think. So understanding all the numbers involved. Sweet. Well, guys, thank you so much for sending in all your questions. Thank you, uh, John and Emily for uh, helping on the podcast today. And remember, you can listen to My Millennial Property wherever you're listening to this podcast. We'll see you guys soon. All right. Bye. Thanks, Glenn. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorised representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services licence 451289. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.